Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal, whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members. We hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Hello, and welcome to the HPP podcast. My name is Cynthia Begay. I'm an epidemiologist, PhD student, and a member of the Health Promotion Practice Editorial Board. Today, I am joined by Anne Potempa, Julia Dilly, and Dana Deal, authors and collaborators on a paper published in HPP titled Alaska's Play Everyday Campaign Encourages Parents to Serve Healthy Drinks to Young Children. This paper is part of the HPP supplement featuring projects from the Center for Disease Control Prevention's Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity. These papers are all permanently open access, available to all to read and enjoy. I am particularly excited to talk with our guest today, and I am really happy to talk about collaboration with the Native communities. We have previous episodes where we do talk about community-based participatory research projects and working with tribal communities, and today is going to be adding to that nice collection of episodes we have. So before we get started, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves and have them share where they are calling in from, and we'll start with Anne. Thank you, Cynthia. It's great to be here. My name is Ann Potempa. I am a public health communications specialist with the Alaska Department of Health. My work that I'm going to be focusing on today is through our department's physical activity and nutrition program. And I am calling in from Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. And Julia? Hi, I'm Julia Dilley. I'm an epidemiologist and senior research scientist with the Multnomah County Health Department and Oregon Health Authority Public Health Division. So I work with the state of Alaska through a longtime partnership and continue to support different health promotion programs. And I'm calling in today from Washington State, where I live, and I want to acknowledge I'm on the traditional ancestral lands of the Nisqually people or the Squally option. Thank you. Thank you. And Dana? Hi, Cynthia. Thanks for inviting us. So my name is Dana Deal. My Yupik name is Anjilak and my Chupik name is Gnavyuk. I am Yupik and Denaina on my maternal side and Icelandic and German on my paternal side. And I'm originally from Aniak, which is in Western Alaska on the Kuskokum River. But I'm actually calling in today from Anchorage, which is on the traditional homelands of the Denaina people. And I work for the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium as the Wellness and Prevention Director. Thanks for having us. Thank you, everybody. And I should have extended my introduction a little bit more too. So, hi, everybody. My name is Sophia. I'm Hopi, Navajo, and Mexican. And I am calling in from Bakersfield, California, the traditional lands of the Yokut people. So, thank you. And Dana, I want to say you have a very beautiful, I don't know if you all call it a ribbon shirt, but it's very beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. It's called a Gus Buck in Yupik. A Gus Buck. Gus Buck. Yeah. <laughs> very beautiful. So let's jump right in. Um, tell us about Alaska, its size, its population, its beauty. You know, set the stage for the listeners. And I'll start with Anne. Sure. Thank you. I have been an Alaska resident for more than 20 years. Alaska is the largest state in the country. 
it's so large that if you were to take its landmass and overlay it over the rest of the continental United States, Alaska's expanse would go from the east coast to the west coast and from the north all the way down to the south. While it's large in size, it's pretty small in overall population with about 735,000 residents. Many of those residents, like me, live in the largest community in Alaska, which is Anchorage. But Anchorage is not the state capital. Our state capital is Juneau, and it's down in southeast, which is down the arm of Alaska. Thousands of families in Alaska live in much harder to reach areas in our state, areas that can only be reached by boat or plane, sometimes small planes, because they're off what we call the road system. You can't drive there. I would call Alaska a beautiful place of extremes. Some communities like mine in Anchorage are surrounded by mountains and water. Others in Southeast Alaska like Juneau are inside or near rainforests. And then others are above the Arctic Circle, which means they live in places where the sun doesn't rise for more than 60 days in the winter. And then if you flip that around in the summer, the sun really doesn't set for just as long. Alaska is also pretty unique in terms of healthcare delivery. There's only a couple communities in the state that have local health departments. So many of our listeners probably live in states that have a lot of local health departments or county health departments, and their state health departments are partnering with them all the time. We have a very limited opportunity to do that. So we're often partnering with a lot of other types of people and organizations, including public health nurses, regional tribal health organizations, and then one of our longtime partners, which is Dana's organization, which is the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. And I'd love for her to talk more about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please, Dana, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, thanks, Anne, for that overview of Alaska. And just to give people a little bit of a sense of where I come from, I was born and raised in Aniak, which is a really small village in the Western interior part of Alaska. It's a community of about 500 people and it's a village where you can only get there by plane. So one of the things I think Anne mentioned that's unique about Alaska is that the road systems don't connect all of our communities. So for me to get home from Anchorage, I have to actually fly by plane. But today I live in Anchorage, which is where the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium is located. Um, and ANTHC, for those that are not familiar, is a nonprofit tribal health organization. And it was designed to meet the unique health needs of Alaska Native and American Indian people living in Alaska. So we serve approximately 180,000 Alaska Native and American Indian people annually. And the services that we provide are really in partnership with both our people and the tribal health organizations within what we call the Alaska Tribal Health System. So what we provide is comprehensive medical services through our hospital, which is called the Alaska Native Medical Center, and it's located here in Anchorage as well as our statewide wellness programs. We provide disease research and prevention and also rural water and sanitation services across Alaska. So as Anne described, our health system is quite complex, but our tribal health system is even more complex. So we do work in partnership with what we call regional tribal health organizations to deliver services, but we also work with those tribal health organizations to reach the 229 tribes that are located across Alaska. And it's complex, not only because of our vast geography, but also because Alaska is comprised of very diverse cultural groups. We have at least 11 distinct cultural groups and at least 20 different Alaska Native languages that are documented. 
And today, about, I think, 22% of Alaska's population is Alaska Native or American Indian, which is the highest percentage for this racial group of any state in the U.S. So our system is really complex. Our people are very diverse, and we work in partnership with our regions to be able to deliver health care and public health services across Alaska. Wow. And kind of speaking on the tribal communities there, thinking about having over 200 tribes in the state, Alaska has the most tribes in the state, right, of any state, it sounds yep. like. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Yeah. Because there's like a little bit over 580 federally recognized tribes, so almost half are right there in Alaska. And just kind of a question, uh, some folks who are listening might be familiar with the Indian Health Services or IHS for sure. Do the tribal health organizations in Alaska, are they funded by IHS? Are they funded by the tribes themselves? How does it work in Alaska? And is it different than, you know, what's going on down here in the lower 48? So within the Alaska tribal health system, we actually self-govern our own health care. So we do get IHS funding funneled through our system, but we manage our own health care. So we are fortunate that we've had tribal leaders advocating for self-governance of our health care since the 1970s or maybe even earlier. So in Alaska, we are somewhat unique in that we do manage and deliver our own health care services. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, I know I've been hearing two tribes are moving that way. And I think even my own tribes do that as well. So how did you all end up working in public health to serve Alaska communities? And I'll start with Anne. Sure, I came to public health in kind of a unique route. I'd say I've spent my whole career working in health communication and education. I come from a love of reading and writing and telling stories, and I've been able to carry that interest from my first career to my second. So my first career stems from where I grew up. I grew up in Wisconsin. My first degree was in print media journalism and sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And after that, I worked in newsrooms for print newspapers in three different states over 10 years and ended up at the Anchorage Daily News, where I was the healthcare reporter for about seven years. I was pretty much the only healthcare reporter at that time. The Anchorage Daily News is the largest state newspaper. It does have a city's name attached to it, but it is considered the state's newspaper. While I was there, I was covering a lot of public health, and I really wanted to do a better job of that. And I applied for and was chosen for what was called a night journalism fellowship at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. So I took a sabbatical from the paper, moved to Atlanta for several months, and was among eight international journalists who were embedded inside the CDC to learn about public health from the inside so that when we got back to the newspapers, we would do a better job reporting on it. So when I got back to Alaska, I wanted to learn even more. Our University of Alaska system had started a distance-based master's of public health program, and I quickly joined that and completed that, which allowed me to get my master's degree in public health with a health communication focus while continuing to do my work. And then on that, I transitioned from a health communicator in newspapers to a health communicator in our Department of Health. And I've been here for 15 years within the Alaska Department of Health, working in Anchorage that whole time. And I guess I should say, I feel really fortunate that I I work in a job right now that encourages me to kind of marry all these skills together using my writing and my storytelling skills, as well as my 
understanding and background in public health. And I do that through running social marketing campaigns, which are really built to improve knowledge about health issues, as well as ultimately improve health behaviors. And that's kind of why we're here today to talk about one of those social marketing campaigns. And I know we'll get into detail in a minute, but sort of set the stage. The paper in health promotion practice is about our social marketing campaign called Play Every Day, which was created to support Alaska children to grow up at a healthy weight. And our publication really highlights the evaluation that shows that our Play Every Day campaign in Alaska is changing the drinks parents are serving their young children, and that cutting back on serving sugary drinks during these early years of a child's life is really important because it sets them out for better health drink choices later on, as well as better health outcomes across the board. And so that's sort of the type of work I do and how I got there. And I just feel very fortunate to be able to do that for Alaska and its communities. Wow, it sounds like you're perfectly positioned to bring this campaign to life. And I can really tell in the manuscript, you know, the care from the whole team that's gone into it. And then Dana, how did you end up working in public health and serving Alaska communities? Well, I like that you asked that question, Cynthia, because I hadn't really thought about it prior, but I will say I've always been interested in health. I think when I was growing up, I was really fortunate to have a a very active family. We were always engaged in not just organized sports, but we also got out on the land to fish, garden, or gather some of our native plants and berries. So I always enjoyed those activities, but also I have always enjoyed our native foods and being able to gather them and process them and eat them together My mom teases me because she says I was the only child that really enjoyed to sit and eat native foods with her when we were growing up, such as fish head soups. My siblings didn't really like some of those soups that might sound strange, but I was the one that always sat and ate them with her. But it wasn't until later in life that I realized how much healthier those foods are when you compare them to like the store-bought options. So I think my lived experience is really what inspired me to always work in the public health field. In Alaska, our traditions like our subsistence activities, like our fishing, hunting, gathering, and then our foods are what are good for us physically, mentally, and spiritually. And that's something that I'm just generally very passionate about. And it's a strength within the Native community. So I feel really fortunate that I can actually promote those things within the work that I do, but also engage in them personally as well. So I've always been interested in the health field. Unfortunately, we do have a lot of health disparities that we see within the Alaska Native community, but we also have a lot of those strengths that I described. So it's a really wonderful opportunity for me and the team that I work with to be able to uplift those strengths and talk about how we can use them as a best practices in our own way in the public health field. I love that. I I feel like public health is just such a good intersection too, you know, to reach our communities, to lean on our traditional ways. And when you're talking about the way you eat and things like that, you know, for my tribe in Hopi, we have Nukwavi and that's freshly butchered sheep, the corn that we grew out there, you know, and harvested. And a lot of our ceremonies and tradition are around those foods and they end up being really healthy, right? They're just so integrated and kind of getting back to that is really important. So that's really awesome that you have those experiences and the community is so so lucky to kind of have you helping instill that too, and probably in some ways bringing it back. And then Julia? Yeah, so gosh, this is a great question. So in my family, we lost my dad when I was just a kid as a result of smoking, cigarette smoking. And so I grew up thinking that I wanted to be a doctor and to try to 
help people be healthier. And then as I went through college, I learned about public health and I thought, oh, well, this is the thing, <laughs> like thinking about communities as opposed to trying to help, you know, look at wellness for individual people to look at communities. So I started out a career in public health and tobacco control and really learning about policy and education, you know, public education and how does that help communities to become healthier. And then I think over time, my interest has really evolved to connecting communities with research and with data in a way that's practical, that's really helps communities to understand their own health status and what they can do to make changes in their communities that lift everybody up. And then in terms of Alaska, so I've worked, gosh, it's been over 25 years in Washington and Oregon, specifically in the public health systems. And for 16 of those years, I've also been working with Alaska. So our Oregon public health departments has a partnership ongoing with Alaska health departments. And so we share some of those epidemiology resources across our states, which is a tremendous advantage in terms of, you know, it certainly helps us to do work, but also it gives us that bigger perspective on how public health looks in all different communities. And I don't know, I just feel like we share so much knowledge across the state borders. So that's it. That's great. I know that in our work too, we end up working in silos sometimes. And so kind of being in California, specifically I'm an epidemiologist for LA County, I just feel like that's it. <laughs> that's my sphere of knowledge. So it's really great hearing about how states are working together and sharing those resources. So before we get into your study, what is the nutrition and food security environment in Alaska overall? And we'll start with Dana, if you can describe that for us. Yeah, I think maybe before talking about food security, I think it might be helpful to give a little bit of an overview of our traditional foods in Alaska. Our traditional foods, when I think about the Alaska Native community, are the foods our ancestors and our people traditionally have hunted, fished, gathered, or grown. And so they include various things like our marine foods, like our salmon, whale, seal, and halibut. They include our meats, like our moose and caribou, but they also include our birds, like our ducks and geese, and then all of our plants and berries, like our green salmon berries and blueberries. And I think it's important just to remind ourselves that these foods are very healthy. They're typically lower in saturated fat and higher in those healthy fats, but they provide a ton of vitamins and minerals and nutrients. For instance, we have a berry called the salmon berry, and it's an excellent source of vitamin A and vitamin C. And then things like our meats even are very healthy, like our caribou. It's an excellent source of protein and iron. So those traditional foods are very important for us, and they're an important part of the food system. Unfortunately, today, I think we're all aware that things like climate change, really disastrous weather patterns, and then even inflation are having a significant impact on our access to not only these foods, but the foods that we can purchase in the local grocery stores. So for instance, when we talk about climate change, it's impacting where we can fish, hunt, and gather because things like the sea ice are melting earlier than it typically should be. We're seeing a salmon disaster on some of our rivers, our main rivers like the Yukon. And then we even have, because we're in very remote areas of Alaska, there's a very high cost of groceries in the stores. It takes a lot to ship groceries from out of state to Anchorage and then have them get to some of our smaller communities. So groceries can be very expensive, which impacts food security. Last year, someone had posted on social media that a carton of milk in one community was as high as $18. And that's not uncommon. It might even be higher in other areas of the state. 
So groceries are expensive. And then due to just the geographic expanse of our state, it sometimes also takes weeks for things like fresh produce to get to the stores. So it's not uncommon for produce to arrive in a community and already be spoiled. So my mom actually in the community I grew up in, she runs a really small restaurant and she consistently struggles with getting ripe produce for her restaurant because oftentimes the tomatoes will get there and they'll be spoiled, the green peppers, and then the lettuce will get brown before it gets there because of weather delays or other shipping issues. So all of those things really contribute to our access to healthy foods, but also food security and just kind of how complex our food systems are. On top of that, some of our rural communities still lack in-home water and sewer service, which is another significant public health issue. And so it's important for us when we're doing messaging or talking about healthy behaviors and changing behavior, that we remember that all of these systems are sometimes going against us. And it's not as easy as you would expect it to be to just pick up an apple and from the grocery store or have healthy milk available. So we have to consider all of those things when we think about our food system and access to healthy foods, especially in rural Alaska. Wow, thank you for sharing that. And I think it does provide a lot of perspective and just accessibility in its truest form, you know, just how hard it is to get fresh produce. I do have a question. How do rural communities access water? So for instance, I grew up in the city, but my mom grew up at a Hopi reservation and we have groundwater out there. So they go into the wells to get their water. And so she would share every morning, you know, you had to go out there and get your water and you actually had to do it before the well dried up. So if you waited too long, sometimes in the summer, that would be it. And you may not even be able to get water out of the well. What does it look like out there in terms of water access for the more remote communities? Yeah, it depends on where you are in Alaska. There are some communities that do have access to things like a well, so they can get fresh water through the well. Some communities have water delivered through the city, like city water can get delivered to those communities. But some, like I said earlier, don't have access. And so they'll have to purchase like bottled water from the stores or like you said, get it from a spring or a safe lake that they've traditionally used for their drinking water. So it just depends on where you're at. But I think most communities do have access to either city water or well water, but there still is a handful of communities out there that don't have that access. Thank you. And Anne, do you want to share about the nutrition and food security environment? Sure, I would like to add a little bit to what Dana said, which is all really important context for the state. I'll just start by saying that our physical activity nutrition program as a whole has a number of strategies that we look at in terms of nutrition and food security, everything from healthy food and drink policies, informing that, supporting breastfeeding, supporting active routes to places we visit every day, like offices, schools, stores. But I know that today we're really kind of focusing in on our work with our Play Every Day campaign and the strategy of promoting healthy drinks like water or plain white milk instead of sugary drinks. And and while I, I don't live in a rural community, again, Anchorage is the largest community in Alaska, I've been very fortunate to be able to have traveled to a number of rural communities over the past 10 years to either film messages for Play Every Day or do focus groups with Alaska parents to inform the materials that we make. 
And a couple of things are noteworthy to me when I do that. When we fly out to these communities, either in a bigger plane or as Dana and I talked about smaller planes, we often land and then while we sit in the plane to wait to get off the plane, pallets after pallets after pallets of sugary drinks will be offloaded to go into the stores to sell. And it's notable and you can see that happen. And then we always go to the local stores when we're there to sort of see what Dana was just talking about. Like what does it cost to buy things when you're there and sort of what's available fresh versus not. And we see some pretty surprisingly high prices. We just had a film crew go to Dillingham, which is a commercial fishing port in Southwest Alaska. It's pretty small. It has about 2,200 total people in it. And they went into the store and a small container of strawberries was $10. And a bunch of green kale to make a salad was another $10. And that is definitely more than a lot of our listeners are probably used to. And then we always go to the, the drink aisles to look at what the price of drinks cost. And in April, we did this little sort of evaluation in Ukiavik, which is our northernmost community in Alaska. And interestingly enough, is the northernmost community in the country. It's above the Arctic Circle. And at that time, you know, Dana quoted a price of about $18 for a container of milk. And in this particular community on that day in the spring, a gallon of milk was $12.99. And as I mentioned, I'm from Wisconsin, it's known as America's Dairyland. And I had my mom go out and look at the store shelves that week and you could get the same gallon of white milk for almost five times less in Wisconsin. So it's a big difference for these healthy drinks. So then we like to take these drinks and we bring them down to the per ounce cost so that you could actually compare across these containers because sometimes it's a gallon, sometimes it's sold as a can, sometimes as a bottle. So then we looked and we saw in that same day, you could get 12 pack of cans of soda for $11.98. So you take that down to the ounce, you've got 10 ounces, 10 cents per ounce for the white milk and eight cents per ounce for the soda. So on that day, the healthier milk was more expensive than the sugary drink. And then there's the question about water. In a number of communities, bottled water is the choice. And so you could buy a bulk grouping of bottled water. And when you took that down to the price per ounce, it was also eight cents per ounce. So again, you have healthy drinks that are not always the cheapest options when you are faced with making choices for your family in the store. And that's just something we need to think about and consider when we do our messaging, because that is an environmental concern, is the price of food and drinks that families have to serve their children. Yeah, I think that even just thinking about my own tribe and the Navajo Nation, you know, we had that junk food tax, and they're also kind of combating similar issues with the price of soda being cheaper than water and just candy and sugary snacks in general. And I think too, you know, a lot of it has to do with shelf life. If you're not accessing those fresh fruits and vegetables, you're kind of forced to buy these more unhealthier options that have a longer shelf life and they're likely cheaper because they're easier to get out there. So that's really promising too, that the state is looking at that because with my tribe, it is like a tribal initiative 
And it's like, for instance, California hasn't proposed a junk food tax like that and implemented it, but not to say that that's the solution, but, you know, just a strategy. So we'll move on and talk about the Alaska Play Everyday Campaign, some of the goals, methods, products, and promotions. And we'll start with you, Anne, talking about this campaign. Sure. Thank you. I have been with the campaign since the absolute first day. And I think this campaign is a great example of sort of innovation within our state health department. It started back in 2011 as an idea. So we had a health commissioner at the time in our health department who had some available funds and sort of put the call out to everybody in the department to pitch ideas. What projects have you not been able to do that you'd like to try? And at that time, I was really interested in social marketing and using communications as a behavior change tool. And the physical activity and nutrition manager at the time, who now actually runs our section of chronic disease prevention, which is over our physical activity and nutrition program, she reached out to me and we were talking and we knew that we worked with colleagues who were already following some CDC best practices for using a social marketing communications campaign in tobacco prevention land. So many states have tobacco prevention communication campaigns. There is a lot of evidence at a national level at the CDC for the success of those when you maximize reaching your audience repeatedly over time with enough frequency to improve knowledge about these health concerns and then ultimately improve behaviors. So preventing initiation of smoking or quitting smoking. But we have not, up until that point, used that strategy in our physical activity and nutrition program. So we pitched this idea that we would start a campaign to help Alaska children grow up at a healthy weight. And that's a really important goal in our state because about one out of three Alaska children is growing up with overweight or obesity. And we were fortunate that the commissioner chose, but we were just a pilot. We were just hoping that in one year we could create something that would do what we set out to do, which is help parents understand some of these behaviors that are related to unhealthy weight gain, like physical activity and the foods and drinks that we consume, and then how to make healthier choices, and then how could we make that easier for parents. We did a whole lot of work on the front end, which social marketing campaigns always do. They prioritize an audience, in our case, it was Alaska parents of young children. They learn about that audience through some sort of research method. And we typically use the focus group to get Alaska parents in the room, a small number of them, and we learn about them. What do they know? What do they not know about this health behavior? What are they doing in terms of serving sugary drinks or healthy drinks? What are they not doing? What might be standing in their way to do a different behavior that they're not doing and how could we help that? So it's sort of understanding where they're at, what they know and from where we can grow. And then we often do a second set of focus groups where we take all of that information that we've learned and we create what we call a storyboard, which is a short visual representation with a 30 second script line. So very short, what you're used to seeing on a commercial on radio or TV and saying, here's what we heard from parents this is how we think it would play as a message. Parents, when you hear and see this, does this speak to you? Does it resonate with you? Would you remember it? Does it improve your knowledge about drinks? And does it encourage you to 
choose healthy drinks yourself? And would you, in fact, after seeing this message, change the drinks you serve your children? And then we take, hopefully out of that, and most of the times we see one or two messages kind of rise to the top, and then we create a campaign around those, then we run it, and then we evaluate it. And so that's sort of a circle that we have continued to do to build on our campaign over the last 10 years. And we're really fortunate to have the great partners here with us today to help do that. Julia Dilley and her team with Program Design and Evaluation Services have been with us since almost the beginning on multiple levels of evaluation so that we can show that we are reaching these families and improving knowledge and improving self-reported behaviors. And then working with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium so that we can make sure that we are hearing from Alaska Native parents, being respectful of the environments that they're in, including them in our messages, including them in our evaluation. And that's really kind of how Play Every Day came to be. I just want to add a little bit about sort of the sugary drink component. You know, when you do a social marketing campaign that is addressing a behavior, when you think about nutrition, we could have looked at a whole bunch of different things to improve nutrition, but we really settled on the sugary drink. Because when you look at consumption across the country, when you look at added sugar, sugary drinks is the leading source of added sugar in most people's daily diets. And for a lot of these drinks, they are primarily added sugar with little or no other nutritional value attached to these drinks. We also know it's a strong recommendation for the National Dietary Guidelines that we limit these. In the last five years, four leading health organizations that work with children have come out strongly to say sugary drinks are not recommended for children ages five and younger. Just in the last couple of years, the National Dietary Guidelines for Americans say that parents should avoid serving added sugar in foods or drinks to children two or younger. And so we use that guidance to both inform our message, but then we also share that guidance through our message because we know that sugary drinks over time can increase people's chances for a lot of other serious health concerns, unhealthy weight gain, type 2 diabetes, cavities in children's mouths, and then over time, even heart disease. And these are the kinds of things that we're trying to address early to establish sort of healthier habits so that over this child's lifetime, they can prevent and avoid some of these very serious health problems and have better health over time. Yeah, those are really great points. And I think that just this very mindful, integrated approach really, again, like is reflected in that manuscript and the results that you'll have and just the impact. And I want to hear from Dana as well about her thoughts on the campaign and specifically how this partnership was woven into it. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about ANTHC and how we've partnered with the State Department of Health on this campaign. We actually partner with the State Department of Health on various public health-related campaigns because we provide services statewide, so our jurisdictions are shared in a way, but also because we know that it's important to collaborate and leverage resources to have a greater reach and impact across Alaska. So we began partnering on the Play Every Day campaign because we have a shared goal to promote physical activity and decreasing sugary drink consumption especially among Alaska Native families. But we also collaborate because we want to ensure the messages are culturally relevant and resonate with our Alaska Native audiences. So more specifically, we have partnered on this particular campaign to help conduct the focus group among Alaska Native families 
And as Anne described, they were able to use those findings from the focus groups to inform the scripts and some of the messages for Play Every Day. And that helped to ensure that they resonated with our Alaska Native population. We've also partnered to assist with things like recruitment of Alaska Native talent for the campaign ads. This is kind of a fun process for us because although Alaska is really large geographically, it's actually pretty small population-wise. So as Native people, we're connected really closely through family and friend networks. So sometimes Anne will reach out and ask us if we know of anyone that might be a good fit for an ad. And we'll just immediately know like somebody I work with or I have a friend who's got you know, young kids that might be a good fit for the ad. So we partner in various ways from recruitment to collaborating on sharing the ad statewide through different media networks, the focus groups, because we know that it's a great way to leverage our resources together to have greater reach and impact. But like I said, also to ensure they're culturally relevant. I love that. I think I I did see, um, and we will post them with the show and advertise with this episode, some of the campaign pictures And I I really like that. It reminded me of, I did some work with the census in California and kind of a similar approach to, you know, what families can we tap into, you know, and, you know, we really want to show like our people in everyday settings as well. You know, it's not just a matter of like only traditional regalia, you know, we want to see like our kids just drinking water, you know, like, and I really appreciated that from the ads. And I wanted to ask specifically for the recruitment, how are you able to reach these families, you mentioned that some of these places are only accessible by plane, you know, did the team go out there? Was there another place you were able to recruit and get kind of a high volume of folks, Native families participating in these focus groups? Yeah, Dina, why don't you start with that and I'll join in. Yeah, I was just going to say that for some of the talent we recruited, they're primarily in the Anchorage area because we actually do have a pretty high population of Alaska Native people living in some of our urban centers, including Anchorage. So for us, like I said earlier, we use our networks, people we know in the area, but I think Anne can talk a little bit about how they actually do travel out to some of our communities to gather footage. So pass it off to Anne. Yeah, I mean, we've been really fortunate to be able to partner with Dana and ANTHC, the Tribal Health Consortium, on both focus group recruitment and filming. Let me talk a little bit about that. For the past 10 years, we have done many series of focus groups with Alaska parents both to better understand what we call knowledge, attitudes, behaviors, sort of to build the campaign, and then to do message testing before you actually pick the messages that will be the sort of the centerpieces of the campaign. We have been able to fly out to a number of villages, communities that have larger percentages of Alaska Native families there so that we can ensure that we are hearing in person, in the room from like eight to 10 usually Alaska parents of young children who are there. That's been a great strategy. We've been able to go to Keogvik again, the northernmost community in Alaska in the U.S. We've gone to Bethel on the western coast. We've been to Kotzebue on the western coast, uh, Dillingham in the southwest, all the way down southeast. We've been to Yakutat, which is a really small community down there, Juneau. So we've been really able to get some great representation across the state. But I think my favorite partnership I did with Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium was a few years ago when they came up with this really unique way for us to hear from Alaska Native parents across the state, but in Anchorage. And how we did that is that there is a hospital in town in Anchorage called the Alaska Native Medical Center. 
where Alaska Native people from all across the state sometimes need to come for the services that they need. So while they are there, sometimes they have to be there for a while, days, weeks, sometimes even longer. And we worked with Dana's team and a research contractor to do recruitment of families in the hospital while they were there, if they had time to come join us for this focus group about our messaging. So we were able to hear from Alaska Native parents that came from dozens of communities that otherwise would have required really small plane trips over and over and over to hear from these individuals. But we got to hear from them all at once in one room, which was so efficient and just gave us a much wider net of people to hear from. It was incredible. And we could never have done that without the partnership of the Native Tribal Health Consortium. So that was great. And I will say we've also had some really lovely opportunities for filming where we do a lot of work in Anchorage with Alaska Native families, but we were able to, a number of years ago, go out to Bethel and work with an Alaska Native family who has a fish camp on the Kuskokwim River. And we got to go out with them because a lot of physical activities for Alaska Native and these families in these communities deal with the land and the water. And so we were able to spend a day with them. And it was one of the most memorable days of my career. And it was just a great experience to be able to go out there and film this family and include them in a play everyday message to show how families are able to be active in all kinds of ways. That's great. I love hearing about how immersed your team was just being able to share that space with the family and seeing what they do in their day-to-day sounds really amazing. And I think Anna and I, we were talking before we started recording that I had a chance to visit Anchorage a few years ago and the IHS hospital is the you know spot I wanted to visit. I mean, that's goals. California, we don't have any IHS hospitals or any native hospitals. So just to kind of have that community hub for the entire state just sounds like a dream. And if any listeners go to Anchorage and want to go to their gift shop, I think at the time might be true now. All the proceeds go back to the artists, right? And the folks working in the gift shop are volunteers themselves. So it's a really great place. So let's move on to the paper itself. So the paper focuses on the importance of serving healthy drinks to young children. So can you talk about some of the key messages of the public service announcements included in the paper, maybe some of the images in those messages and how they were developed and selected? And we'll start with Anne and then move on to Dana. Sure. And I don't think I clarified this earlier, and I want to say it if I haven't. The campaign itself is called Play Every Day, and its ultimate goal is to help Alaska children grow up at a healthy weight. And the reason it's called what it is, is that we started out primarily with the behavior of getting more Alaska children closer to 60 minutes of physical activity every day, or as we call it, play every day. So that's where the campaign name came from. But then a couple of years in, we added the secondary arm of messaging, which addresses this other behavior component that can affect healthy weight, and that is sugary drink consumption. So that is what this paper really focuses in on is that arm of the Play Every Day campaign. So I think we prioritize an audience and our audience for the sugary drink messaging, healthy drink messaging is Alaska parents of children with ages five and younger. And the reason we did that is kind of twofold. One, we as the Alaska Department of Health are a recipient of the CDC State Physical Activity and Nutrition Grant. 
And one of the grant objectives over that five-year grant cycle is to improve the physical activity and nutrition environments for children, little children, in childcare and preschool settings. And it was very important to me that if that was our program's objective, our communication campaign should be in alignment with that. So we made sure that our messaging was also reaching parents of children younger than five and that we were partnering with childcare centers, healthcare providers, preschool providers that also were working with young children. Secondly, we know there is a high amount of consumption of sugary drinks among these young children. And we know that from a survey that we do systematically in Alaska called Childhood Understanding Behaviors Survey. It's the, actually the survey that Julie will talk about in a second because we used it for our play everyday evaluation. But what it is, is that throughout the year, this survey systematically reaches out to Alaska mothers of three-year-old children and asks them questions about all kinds of things, including health and behaviors. One of the things it asks them is about the drinks they serve their children. And we know that these mothers are reporting that about one out of three Alaska three-year-olds, about 29%, has a sugary drink every single day. That is a lot. We know the positive news there is the trend. The trend line for that has been going down. So we are seeing a decrease but right around now, it settles at about 29% of Alaska three-year-olds are having a sugary drink every day. And we do want to improve that. And let's talk about what we mean when we talk about sugary drinks. Like to you and me, to a family that has people of all ages, that can be anything from a soda to a sports drink, to an energy drink, to a sweetened vitamin drink, to the coffee drinks and the tea drinks that we put syrups in. Those are all sugary drinks. When we talk about little kids, what we hear in our focus groups with Alaska parents is there are three camps of drinks that are the most common. One is the powdered sweetened drink. And so for Alaska, that means like Tang and Kool-Aid, those types of drinks. We also have fruit drinks that are uh, liquid. So the, the drinks that you'd see in the little boxes with the straws or the pouches or the bottles. Those are really common. And then you see flavored milks like chocolate milk. And also what we hear from parents is that these drinks are confusing. Parents have the best of intentions. They tell us they want to serve their kids healthy drinks, and we know they want to serve their kids healthy drinks. And yet when they go to the store, what they're faced with is this label on the front that has these words that are confusing. They might say 100% vitamin C. But it can drink and say 100% vitamin C and still be loaded with sugar. They might have a picture of a fruit on the drink, or they might have a name of a fruit in the drink's title, and yet that fruit is not even in the drink at all. Or they might say they're a sweetened fruit drink, but they have some level of 100% fruit juice, but maybe they only have a couple percents of 100% fruit juice, and then the rest of it is just a lot of added sugar. So these words like 100% natural, all organic, 100% vitamin C, they might give an impression that a drink is healthier than it is. And so what we've worked really hard to do is help parents better understand those drinks. And the way to do that, and we show it in our messages, is you turn the drink around. You look beyond that front label and you look at the nutrition facts label, which is on the back. And in other good news, the nutrition facts label has now a new line on it called includes added sugars. And we, on our messages, we'll circle it and we'll bold it and we'll show 
our parents how to spot that line. And that when you see zero there, then you know there's no added sugar in the drink. So a lot of our messaging focuses on those kinds of things. And so I'll end with that before passing this on to Dana, because I know she's got some interesting things to add to this. There are four public service announcements that kind of ran during our evaluation period that we talk about, and we sort of use some photos to explain it. And each of those public service announcements had a job. And that job was to address what we heard from parents and try to make it easier for them the next time they shop. So some of those 30 second messages will show that parent turning the drink around. We'll show that includes added sugar lines so they can easily spot it. Can use sort of bursts of color and highlighted visuals on screen to like pinpoint these buzzwords and then give you the hint that you should look beyond those because the drink may not be as healthy as it seems. And then we've done some creative things like we have one PSA where we have a three-year-old Alaska Native girl who's sitting at the table and a shower of mini donuts falls on her table. And she starts stacking them up and she's stacking them up next to a 10 ounce bottle of a pink colored fruit drink. And we did that intentionally because we wanted to find a way to help parents easily see how much sugar was added into these drinks. When you look at the bottle, you can't see the sugar. It's all mixed in there. And one of the powerful strategies we heard from parents is put it next to its complement in terms of added sugar in a treat. So the little girl is stacking up the donuts and you see the stack of eight donuts get higher than the drink. A small fruit drink can have the same amount of sugar as eight mini donuts. You wouldn't let your children eat that much sugar, so why let them drink it? Just one of these drinks has more sugar than your little kid should have in one day. Start now to build healthy habits, limit sugary drinks, and give water or milk instead. And then we have another public service announcement that we work really closely with Dana on, and I'll let her talk more about that one. It includes an Alaska Native family, and it really points to the idea that parents are role models, that kids are really looking to their parents to see the choices they make and then modeling choices after that. So if a parent chooses a healthy drink, a child may be more likely to choose that drink too. And that public service announcement shows that and models that. Oh, I was going to say when I was looking at the PSAs you sent for the advertising, that one specifically with the powdered donut struck me the most. And I think it's just a good frame of reference, right? Like we've all had a powdery loon, those little, um, what are they called? Like hostess donuts, you know? And I know there's some campaigns that will put the actual sugar greens in a bag. And, you know, it looks like a lot of sugar, but if I really conceptualize and think, if I sat down and ate eight of these powdered donuts, and then I could drink that sugary drink in probably two or three gulps, that lends a lot of perspective. But yeah, Dana, please share any uh, comments or thoughts about the paper and its focus. Yeah, I was just going to add to what Anne described and talk a little bit about one particular ad that we partnered on. So there was one ad, I think you probably received the link for it. It's called Daddy Can I? And that one, we worked closely with Anne and her team to assist with the recruitment of an Alaska Native family. 
And that one, the family was actually, they're close friends of mine. So I went to school with the mom, but the ad included a young Alaska native father doing a traditional activity, fishing with his young daughter, and then preparing the fish as a family. But it also integrated messaging around the father being a role model, like Anne described to his daughter by drinking water rather than a sugary drink. But this particular ad, again, it's called Daddy Can I? It's one of my favorites because I feel like it's really holistic in nature. It incorporates the importance of like a family gathering together, doing a traditional activity, which was fishing, preparing the fish together, and then role modeling the drinks that are healthier for their children. So that one I really enjoyed also because, you know, it included people that look like us, you know, it was a native family. So that helps messaging resonate is if we see people that look like us on those ads. And also just because I knew the people personally, they're healthy role models, which is great to be kind of amplifying those people in our communities and actually seeing them on things like the television screen. So that particular ad is one of my favorites for various reasons, but mostly because I know them and it's fun to see friends on on TV, right? Yeah, and I will say, Dana, we are running that one again this fall and we continue to see social media comments. Just really appreciating that ad for the family it shows, the activity they're doing. It really speaks to a lot of people. It continues to be popular. Daddy, can I go with you? Daddy, can I help you? Daddy, can I please have some? That soda is filled with added sugar that can lead to a lifetime of health problems. Your kids just want to be like you. Choose healthy drinks for you and for them. That's great. And I'm so happy you're able to lean on your friends and community. I think that that's what it's really all about. We'll have it in the show notes so that our listeners can see the ad as well. So moving on to our evaluation, Julia, uh, last but not least, you know, what did you find in your evaluation and did anything surprise you? Sure. So first, let me tell you a little about how we evaluated it. So Anne mentioned this, the Alaska Childhood Understanding Behaviors Survey, or CUBS. So CUBS is a unique survey to Alaska, although some states do something like that. So to step back for a second, about one in six moms in Alaska are asked to participate in Alaska's Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System, or PRAMS, survey after they have a baby, a few months after their baby is born. So we have this PRAMS data, you know, moms who have participated in the PRAMS data, CUBS then resurveys these same moms when their child is about three years old. And so that age group of kids and, and those families with children that age, that's the same as the Play Every Day campaign reach for helping young children to drink non-sugary beverages. So we leaned on the CUBS survey, which is an excellent opportunity. So how CUBS works is if the mom is being recruited to take the survey, we send the survey out by mail first and do some reminding. And then we do a phone call if we don't get any response from folks who are participating. In. And Alaska Native moms are oversampled because we want to make sure that we get enough data to support planning programs and supporting the community. So Another nice thing about Cubs is it already asks about what kinds of drinks parents give their children. Anne talked about this. It asks if you're giving your child specifically sweetened fruit drinks like Tang or Sunny D or Kool-Aid or sodas like non-diet sodas and those sweetened sports drinks or vitamin drinks. 
So we had just room to add a few questions onto the survey, but that was enough because the survey already asked a whole bunch of questions that we cared about and that were relevant to the campaign. So what we asked was whether the moms had seen the campaign messages, if they learned something new about drinks from them, if they talked about the campaign or shared the ads with others like on social media, and if they changed the drinks that they serve to their young kids because of the campaign. So the findings in our paper are from the year one of the evaluation of the campaign, and those data were collected between July of 2020 and then March of 2021. So some of the, I think the most exciting findings were that the campaign was working, it was reaching parents and leading them to make behavior changes with their three-year-olds. So specifically, in the past 12 months, about one in three or 34% of the moms had seen the Play Every Day campaign about sugary drinks. Among those moms who had seen the campaign, more than one in three or 39% said the campaign gave them new information about the drinks they were serving their children. Also among moms who'd seen the campaign, one in five or 21% said that they had changed the drinks that they served to their three-year-olds because of the campaign. And then among moms who had seen the campaign and talked about or shared the campaign, they were almost nine times more likely than moms who hadn't seen the campaign to say that they changed the drinks served to their child. And those are adjusted odds ratios. So what that means is after accounting for all the other differences between people, you know, where they live and how much education they might have and their age group, for example, all those things aside, the campaign was associated with nine times greater odds of having their children drinking healthier drinks. So that's super exciting. I won't say it's surprising because we think the campaign works. I think, you know, it's built on a strong foundation, but it's just always a, a pleasure to see that your plans worked out. So I'll say specifically that because Alaska Native families were a high priority for the campaign, we wanted to especially focus our evaluation on making sure the campaign worked for Alaska Native families. So we looked at all these indicators specifically among Alaska Native moms. And I'm delighted to say that the campaign did work very strongly among Alaska Native moms. So among Alaska Native moms, about half or 47% said they saw the campaign. More than half of those said that they got new information about sugary drinks from the campaign. And more than one in three or 37% of those moms that saw the campaign said that they changed the drinks that they served to their kids because of the campaign. So, I mean, altogether, it was just a pleasure to evaluate and we're very proud of that finding. Thank you. And I do remember from reading in the manuscript too, just kind of how you mentioned if you sent out those mailers and they didn't get it, you'd follow up with a phone call. And I really liked that the paper kind of noted a methodological thing as well as that. I think it was the moms who received the phone call were able to recall the campaign maybe more oftentimes in the mailers. Am I correct in that? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I do need to go in and confirm that, but there were some differences between the moms who responded by phone and the moms who responded by mail. And we did take it into account that difference. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it's called survey mode differences. Just sometimes a person speaking to a live person on the phone might respond a little differently for multiple reasons. So we did take that into account as well in our, in right. our study. And I, and I like that, you know, there's just so many angles, right? So many approaches. It wasn't a a passive way to reach a community. It does take a lot of time and effort and energy to follow up with those phone calls. So yeah, that was just another takeaway I really liked about that. And so Dana, do you have any comments about any key takeaways, especially with our Native communities too? Yeah, well, I think I've worked in the prevention field for many years, and I will say that sometimes it's challenging to show direct impacts of the work that we do. 
So sometimes we don't see positive change for years and years after we implement something. But with this particular campaign, it's really inspiring to me to see that the messages did directly impact behavior change in a positive way, including for Alaska Native moms. So that is one thing that I'm really inspired by because I think it can show that when we make the effort to ensure our messages are culturally relevant and we do the due diligence to focus group and be responsive to community feedback, that those messages will resonate and they'll work. So I think that's probably the most inspiring thing in addition to some of the changes that we've seen in serving sugary drinks to our Alaska Native families. So. Definitely. I think this is such a great blueprint, right? Because there's so many initiatives that are attached to Alaska Play or just even the state initiatives that Anne mentioned earlier that could be approached in this way. And seeing its impact so quickly is really promising. So HPP encourages all authors to include implications for practice and policy in their articles. And so what I want to ask you all is, what were your biggest takeaways from the study? And what do you want readers to know or do? And we'll start with Anne. Sure, thank you. I think for me as a communicator, this evaluation just adds to the evidence that social marketing campaigns can be effective strategies for achieving behavior change. Communication is often looked at as an afterthought. It's like, it's the thing that you do only after your project is done to share it with others. And here we're showing an example of health communication as its own public health strategy. It's not a strategy that we've done alone. Instead, play every day and social marketing campaigns like these work in tandem with other public health strategies. So together, they're leading to positive changes in understanding a health issue, or taking positive behavior changes. And I think through this evaluation, we've shown that Alaska mothers who saw the Play Every Day campaign learned new information about drinks, they talked about and shared the campaign with others, and many of them said they changed the drinks they served because of the campaign messages. And I feel like that's the whole goal of these campaigns. And our, our ability to measure these outcomes and sort of share them through your journal it just shows the great potential of communication campaigns that focus on an audience, are integrated into a public health program, and are informed and evaluated by research. Thank you. And Julia? Sure, I'll do the nerd point, which is that, you know, in terms of how we evaluated this campaign, I just think one of the implications is to use the data tools that are at hand, rather than trying to invent a new survey or do a whole new data collection effort. So not every state has a CUBS, but all states have some kind of ongoing health behavior surveys that are going on. And if researchers or evaluators can find ways to take advantage of those, there's so many positives to using those for evaluation. So it was far less expensive to partner with the CUBS survey than it would have been to field an all-new survey. The CUB survey already does a really good job of working extra hard to get high-quality population-based information, including strong survey methods, and to especially do a good job of representing Alaska Native families. That's already a high priority for the survey, so they're already putting a lot of effort in there. So again, partnering with that survey just has so much advantage rather than trying to build something that might not be as good and would be a lot more expensive. Also, that survey already has a bunch of questions that we care about and that are useful for understanding how well the campaign's working on something like sugary drink consumption. And I'll also say that just 
from a respect for persons perspective, limiting the number of surveys that we send out to communities and to people and to people with a three-year-old that they're trying to keep track of. I mean, I think just the more we can take advantage of that from the perspective of limiting the burden on people, I just feel like that's added benefit on top of benefit. And I guess I just want to make the point too, that this approach of all the way through this campaign. So involving communities from the start and using surveillance systems or existing state surveys. Here we're looking specifically at sugary drinks in Alaska Native communities, but that approach can work with all kinds of health topics and all kinds of communities. So I just want to make the point that the findings here have bigger implications for public health practice. Yes, I was so impressed and I was reading the paper that you were tapping into this kind of a hybrid of like a secondary data analysis, but able to weave in some of your own questions. Technology and data collection have come a long way, but I think sometimes we kind of oversaturate ourselves just continuously trying to collect new data, new data, new data, and we have so much data sitting there as well. And that's one of the strategies my mentors are pushing me in my program is use a cancer registry. You know, you want to reach tribal communities and there's decades of data just sitting there, you know, that hasn't been tapped into. And so, especially from an evaluator perspective, I really appreciated it and was inspired by it. Like we should be tapping into these. They have the infrastructure. They're going out there and collecting that data. And like you said, there's so many health topics out there that are being collected. So it is definitely worthwhile. We don't always need to create a new survey. We can tap into what's there too. So thank you. And then Dana? Well, I think positive outcomes from campaigns like these are more likely when the campaigns are longstanding, but also when they work with trusted community partners and engage the population served by those partners. But I also think ensuring messaging is positive and holistic and not just focused on the problem helps these campaigns resonate with Alaska Native people, because I think with both Alaska Native and American Indian people, a lot of our public health messaging historically has been very focused on the disparities and the negative health impacts that we've seen. So this is kind of a way to help flip it and show that our traditions, like our fishing, our values, those are the things that we should be capitalizing on in our messages. And I think this campaign really shows that highlighting those work and they help campaigns resonate with our community. Thank you. Yes. And I think we talked about in the beginning of the episode, just kind of bringing it back to our traditional values and our traditional ways. It's just, you know, that's, just traditionally how it was, right? How we wove those things in and to live a healthy lifestyle. And I just also, again, love that, you know, you're able to reach out to your friends and have them shoot that PSA and as a research team, being able to share that as well. So as we begin to wrap up here, what's next for you? What are you all doing? And is there anything else you'd like to say? And we'll start with Julia this time. So this paper talked about year one of the survey and the campaign evaluation. So the campaign is ongoing. Our survey work is ongoing. So we'll be looking at three years total of data. And yeah, so I guess I'm just looking forward to continuing to watch how the campaign unrolls and and how well it's working. That's great. Well, thank you for publishing year one. And now we can all wait to see how this continues to unfold. And Anne? Yeah, like Dana said, these campaigns do their best when they can be sustained and keep building on partnerships. And we're in our 10th year for Play Every Day, and we're going to continue. And I'm very proud of that. We're going to continue to work with partners like our evaluation partners in Oregon and the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium and schools and families and healthcare providers across the state. So yes, we're going to keep going. And just to help people find us, you can find Play Every Day 
at playeveryday.alaska.gov. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And it's all at the same tag, which is playeverydayak. And if you go to our website, again, playeveryday.alaska.gov, we make sure all of the materials we make are available for free download and sharing. So there are two libraries on our website for physical activity materials and healthy drink materials. And if you click on it, you will find our materials from videos to print handouts, posters, guides that some of our providers are using in their inpatient discussions. All of that's there for people to look at and share. So please do so and help get this message to more families. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, please, everybody visit the website, download the resources. I'm sure they can be applicable in different areas as well. And Dana. Well, one thing I didn't mention earlier is that reducing sugary drink consumption in young children is actually one of the key objectives for our statewide Healthy Alaskan 2030 Health Improvement Plan. So that's the statewide framework that we use to prioritize our health efforts across Alaska and reducing sugary drinks is one of those priorities. So partnering with Play Every Day is a key strategy in achieving that objective. But I think for ANTHC, we'll also potentially use these findings to inform culturally appropriate messaging, not just for reducing sugary drinks and promoting physical activity, but also for promoting oral health. We know that sugary drinks have a significant impact on our oral health. So I think there's some implications even outside of reducing obesity. So it impacts oral health as well. But if you did want to learn more about ANTHC's activities, you can go to our website, anthc.org, or find us on social media. We've got lots of great resources around promoting not just our traditional foods, but consumption of water as well. So thanks for having us today. A fun conversation. Thank you. Yes. Thank you all for joining and all of your perspectives. I think it very well-rounded and thank you, Anne, for helping me bring everyone together. So I'd like to thank you for joining us, Anne, Julia, and Dana. This paper will be available online in early November. And when it is available, it will join our Native and Indigenous Voices collection, which can be found at the HPP website. Be sure to check it out so that you can see the PSA images we talked about earlier. To find out more about the Native and Indigenous Voices and Health Promotion, visit the HPP website. And if you follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll see when this and other Native papers are published and available online. At the website, you can also sign up for the new article alerts so that you know whenever new articles are published on topics you're interested in. And you can find the full CDC supplement, 19 free articles showcasing public health practice in the field at the HPP website as well. All of these links are in the show notes for the episode. And thank you again to our guests, Anne, Julia, and Dana. Thank you to Arden Castle, our podcast editor, for editing this episode. And I am guest host, Cynthia Begay, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'll be back soon with a few more episodes of the HPP podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.